This winter, we're looking at the early chapters of the book of Hebrews. So we're in chapter 2. You can find our passage, Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, on page 1185 in the Bible that's there in the pew rack in front of you. We've seen in chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, because Jesus is better than angels, because he is the Son of God, we must not drift away. We cannot ignore the great salvation that has been announced to us, directly to us, by God's Son. So I invite you to have open in front of you Hebrews chapter 2. In the cool of the garden, they find joy and satisfaction. Its beauty and its fruitfulness make it a true paradise. For Adam and Eve, their life in the Garden of Eden is the fullness of God's kingdom. The trees, we're told, are pleasing to the eyes and good for food. Form and function intertwined, serving one another. God created this garden for their good. They have been given work that is rich and satisfying. They care for one another and care for this beautiful place. God has given them the instructions to subdue the earth and to fill it. They are caretakers of God's kingdom, ruling in God's name. And God's assessment of his work in the Garden of Eden is that it was very good. And yet, even if this is your first time in church, you've likely heard the names Adam and Eve. You've heard mention of this garden. But you know that this perfect and joy-filled kingdom no longer remains. The serpent lurks with his lies. The freedom of the garden will become the confines of sin for Adam and Eve. The kingdom of God is destined to crash in their rebellion. But for a moment, all is well. Actually, it's perfect. God's people living in God's creation, serving God's purposes. This is the kingdom of God, humanity at its finest. We were meant to reign in God's righteousness over God's kingdom. And yet in the brokenness of our current situation, we long for such goodness. In the frustrations of our vocations, we can hardly imagine work that always satisfies. In the selfishness of our attitudes, we find it difficult to picture the joyful service in the Garden of Eden. But this memory, this hope of a perfect kingdom, a full communion with God's creation and with the Creator himself, it lives still within us. It's here that we see God's purpose, our purpose. This is who we were meant to be. We are God's representatives serving in God's kingdom. Could we return to such a place? Is there any possibility of God's kingdom coming again in its fullness on earth? In the book of Hebrews, in the author's description of Jesus and angels, he turns our attention to the world to come, the kingdom of God which will come again in its fullness. And Hebrews forces us to consider the hope and purpose of humanity. 
And it points us to the ministry of Jesus the King. And so listen as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, help us today to see Jesus. For those who listen to your word with expectant hope of salvation, those who are followers of Christ, let us enjoy today see Jesus as our Savior and Rescuer. Lord, give us hope in the work of his kingdom, confidence in his continuing purposes in this world. And yet, Father in heaven, for those that listen today to the word of God proclaimed and preached, having heard it read, Lord, I pray that they today would be able with spiritual eyes, with the gift of faith, that they would be able to see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he tasted death, because he died in our place. So Lord, today, give us the faith to believe, the confidence to trust in you, the joy and the urgency to serve in your kingdom. Father, we come today praying in the name of your Son, Jesus, who receives glory and honor, Amen. One of the highlights at the display of the Museum of Glass is the world's largest glass-blown castle. Hundreds of hours were put into this display by Spanish glassblower Miguel Arribas. Half a million individual glass pieces stuck together to craft into this shimmering display of fairy tale beauty a translucent and inviting glimpse into the beauty of an imagined kingdom. But museum visitors were kept away from the glass sculpture by a mere barrier, one of those extendable bands stuck between two stanchions, which for an adult who walks in might notice the stanchion and stop. But if you are not quite tall enough, if you are a child in a glass museum whose parents are merely momentarily distracted. This is a curator's disaster. It's a display pretty enough to play in. And that's what these two little kids did. In the process, destroying the $64,000 sculpture 
And this happened just a couple of years ago. And yet, even with my kids tall enough to see a stanchion, I thought, well, I could see one of us doing it. And I'm not even sure it'd be one of the shorter people in my house who would have been guilty. All of the beauty left shattered. Hundreds of hours, tens of thousands of dollars now strewn across a museum's floor. Creation's original beauty seems so fragile, beautiful, and yet so easily shattered. It's as if Adam and Eve, looking at the beauty of God's kingdom, just decided, well, let's go in with a hammer and see if we can reshape this for our own purposes and desires. And so can the pieces of this beautiful kingdom be put together again? Or is the beauty lost forever? Our passage here in Hebrews 2, we're going to look at it using simple headings. Looking at humanity's original glory, humanity's lost glory, and humanity's restored glory. It's a passage which which points us back to the very beginning of creation. The the quotation there is from from Psalm 8 in our passage. In verse 6, the the author of Hebrews says, there's a place where someone has testified. Well, we actually know that someone's name. It's David. The author of Hebrews knew that someone's name. But but David is unimportant at this point in the story because it's the the, the significance of, of Psalm 8 quoted here in Hebrews 2 is not that David wrote it, but that God wrote it. And so it's been written. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. The, the passage in Psalm 8 pointing us back to, to the original be- uh, words of Scripture, very back to the very first chapter of Scripture, Genesis 1, where God, in the plan of creation, contemplates the, the purpose of humanity. In Genesis 1:26, God tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was morning and there was evening, the sixth day. Here in the foundational chapter of Scripture, we see the purpose of humanity, this creational mandate given to us by God that you and I, as people, are meant to fill the earth and subdue it. Not for our own purposes, but for the glory of God. We are caretakers of the kingdom of God. And Psalm 8 builds on that, this, this foundational truth. You've heard these words already in our call to worship. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
The psalmist begins by, by lifting his eyes up to the heavens. You have set your glory above the heavens, but then considers that even the smallest among us are here to give praise to God. For from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avengers. And then Psalm 8 turns its attention toward the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It's that, that moment when the, the psalmist, in the beauty of God's creation, recognizes the, the power and the majesty and the glory of God and yet feels so small. You've had those moments staring at a dark sky or with your toes in the water at the expanse of a, of a great ocean or watching or, 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 or standing on the, on the precipice of, of some, some grand canyon and looking at the, the power of, of God displayed and wondering, what am I, God, that you would even think about me? What is the Son of Man that you would care for him? And yet the psalmist gives us the answer in Psalm 8. You made man, you made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hand. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, the psalmist begins with praise. God, you are great, and I am so small, and yet I have purpose and dignity because you set me just below the power of the angels, here to subdue all of creation in your name for your purposes and your kingdom. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the psalmist quotes from this psalm to show the significance of humanity's place in the world. And so verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 2, it, it ends the quotation, that God put everything under his feet. And then he continues to apply it in verse 8, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now who's the him of this sentence? Is the him humanity... That there is nothing that God has not put under the feet of humanity, or is the him Jesus? Hmm. Now, if you look at the grammar of the passage, well, it doesn't help, because it could be either way. But actually, I, I think theologically that's on purpose. Because, of course, Psalm 8, as we read it in the context of Genesis 1, of creation, is saying that, that what is humanity's place in creation? We are meant to rule in God's place and subdue the earth. And so the hymn, in putting everything under him, speaks of humanity, and God left nothing that is not subject to him. But of course, because of humanity's fall, you and I never got close to fulfilling that purpose. You and I live in a world where, where our work brings us sometimes satisfaction, but often the, the toil and frustration of things not going right. You and I have a sense and a longing for justice. We want to put things back in order, but we feel incompetent and incapable in the brokenness of this world. And so, so the passage is also pointing us to Jesus because we know that everything is not subject to us today. But everything is subject to Christ, which has implications for us 
as the bearers of the image of God. So it has implications for every person, but particularly for us as Christians, those who carry the name of Christ with us, if everything is subject to Christ, then it changes how we should live, both in relationship to him and in relationship to others in this world. Everything which should have been true of the first Adam to rule in the name of God, in the kingdom of God, for the purposes of God, everything which Adam lost because of his sin and rebellion against God, everything which should have been true for the first Adam is now applied to Jesus as the last Adam, as the true human. Because this passage, of course, points us to humanity's lost glory. It, it doesn't just speak with joy at, at Psalm 8 that we are just below the angels with great dignity and purpose. No, verse 8 says it directly. God left nothing that is not subject to him Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Just look around you. This world is broken. You feel it in the broken relationships that you have with the world. You don't even know, can I buy this pair of shoes or am I destroying the, the, the planet? You, you have broken relationships with people around you. They just don't listen to me. They don't hear me. They don't care about me. We have broken our relationship with God because of our sin. One commentator describes, he says, our experience mocks the idea that the world is subject to Christ. Just open a newspaper. Jesus, what are you doing about Ukraine? The tanks are rolling over the children. Do you even see it? See, our experience of the world mocks the idea that God is still in control. And yet, recognizing that there is brokenness in this world, it's actually a reminder to us that it shouldn't be this way. Just saying there is evil in the world doesn't disprove God's existence. Actually, your experience of evil should point you back to the God of creation because you feel like it's not supposed to be like this. You don't just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well, in a random universe, of course evil dictators will run over children with tanks. That's the kind of thing evil dictators would do to get more land. That just happens. No, you say, that shouldn't happen. This is broken but that means it wasn't, that it shouldn't be, that it was made a different way. But that's the, the story the scriptures give to us, that in the perfection of God's creation, it was very good. And so even our experience of the pain of this life points out the fact that it's, it's not just there. It's there and it's wrong. It's there and it must be changed. It's wrongness proves that there must be a standard of what is right. See, the broken world needs restoration because of humanity's lost glory, because we sinned and rebelled against God. And so today, in your, your longing for justice, even as you watched the, the images from Ukraine, even as you, as you saw Pastor Doug Shepard, who has preached and proclaimed the gospel here in our pulpit, whom we support uh, with, our, with our giving, even as he preaches the gospel in a war-torn place, it, the, the church hasn't thrown up its hands and said, well, 
bad stuff happens, we just let bad stuff happen. No. What can we do to mobilize the church, both in Western Ukraine and in Eastern Ukraine? How can we practically serve the needs? And yet I'm sure the work is exhausting. Where you feel like with every box that is sent, that, that 10 more are needed. With every packet that, that, is, that is placed on, on someone who is bleeding, you think, but, but this isn't how it should be. And so you and I, when we face the, the struggles of injustice, we can, we can reach the point of despair where we just want to give up. But knowing where we are, that things are broken, but they won't stay broken, it gives us hope. Not that we can unilaterally bring about all the change we want to see, but that in the midst of brokenness, the church can preach the gospel. I can bring about small, small attempts at, at justice. Because sometimes in our, in our horror at all that has gone wrong, when, we, when we, we would easily be able to say, yeah, at present I don't see everything subject to him, I'm not sure I see anything subject to him. When we want to just sort of throw up our hands in cynicism and say, that's it, I'm done. I'm giving up. And maybe your heart is tempted toward that today, and so you just anesthetize yourself by just letting the, the next show continue. You just veg until you fall asleep, and then the, the next day begins, and you go through the drudgery again. Turn it off. Put it aside. Look to Jesus. Find your hope in the small ways that you can serve in packing a crate to send the small ways that you can serve because you know that things have gone wrong, but they will not stay this way. Yes, we, we do not see everything subject to him, but that doesn't mean that nothing is right now subject to him. There are ways that the gospel, places the gospel is growing, sometimes in the places where suffering is greatest. And so find a way to serve, to give, to care. Because this passage points us not only at, at humanity's original glory and humanity's lost glory, but, but humanity's restored glory. We saw it in verse 5. In, in this conversation about angels, he says it's, it's not to angels that he is subject to the, to the world to come. They won't be the rulers and authorities in the kingdom of God, because who's supposed to do that? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? Oh, we're supposed to do that. Psalm 8. That's humanity's purpose, is to reign in the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we have, have hope that the world to come is actually coming. That when Jesus says, the, when, when we pray, thy kingdom come, that's what we're praying for. This world restored by the power of Jesus, by his grace. And, and understanding where we are in this story, it helps us make sense. There was a good creation. We have broken it, and yet the world to come, which will be restored in the perfection of God's kingdom, is really coming. Now, one of the, the, the favorite examples I have of this is you've probably heard me share this with you. If you've been in Faith Explored or, or in the Faith Connected new members class, then you've, you've, you've heard me share this already. But, but we had a, a teacher who, who was connected here at Faith Church, John, and he's now an administrator down in, in Middletown. But he, he took students to see the, the stage production of Les Miserables, the musical which, which tells the, the dramatic and sweeping story. And now, some of the students volunteered for this just to get out of class. Now, of course, you had some that went because it's Les Mis, and I can sing all the songs, and I, and I know the story, and I'm, I'm engaged in the music. And so at intermission, he's standing with a group of students, and he asks them, so what do you think? 
It, it, it's intermission. People are getting, getting food. They're gathered around. And, and one of the students says, well, no, I was really, I, I like it a lot more than I thought I was going to like it. You know, the, the songs are actually kind of good, and, and the characters, I, 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 felt, I, I felt pulled into the story. I just didn't like the ending. I feel like it just sort of stopped, and I didn't know what was supposed to, like, it just doesn't feel finished. And he looked at the student, and he said, it's not finished. This is just intermission. The rest of the story is to come. This was a kid who, who when you go to the theater, you hand your ticket stub, you sit down and watch the movie, and you walk out when it's done. There's no intermission. I don't need a bathroom break to watch them. I mean, you do need a bathroom break with as long as, as movies have gotten now. But, but I, 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 you know, I, I Google that ahead of time. What, what scene can I skip out on and use the, the restroom? There, there's no intermission. He didn't realize, the, the student didn't understand, we're only in the middle of the story. See, and of course, that's the truth that, that sometimes you and I struggle with. In our hopelessness and despair, we think, I don't see anything subject to the authority and power of Jesus. There's no hope. I feel lost. Brothers and sisters, there's more to come. This scripture promises us a new world to come, the kingdom coming with its authority. Because while at the present time, verse 8, we don't see everything subject to Jesus, verse 9, but we see Jesus, the one who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. We see Jesus. The one who is now a little lower than the angels. But wait, you might think, if you've been listening the last several weeks, I thought the whole point of chapter one was that Jesus is better than angels, like that he's above angels, and now we're saying that he's lower than angels. Yes, he willingly subjected himself to becoming a man. Which Psalm 8 reminds us is one who is made a little lower than the angels. But he's the real man that we need, the true man, the, the righteous Adam who will do what is right, the one who willingly submits himself to God's purpose and plan. And yet, yet we read here that he suffered death. And so, again, doesn't that, doesn't that prove that Jesus failed? Doesn't it prove that Jesus is less than an angel who will last forever without facing death? No. Because again, Jesus willingly suffered death, voluntarily put himself in our place. And you see what the passage is telling us, what, what Hebrews reminds us, is that we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Of course, at the beginning, at creation, Jesus had all glory and honor by virtue of being the eternal Son of God, the Creator Himself. And yet He willingly subjects Himself to become a man and die. And so isn't it lost? I mean, death is the end of Adam. Death is the punishment that Adam deserved because in God's perfect kingdom, Adam said, oh, I don't want to play your way. I'll play my way. I'll take a hammer to your glass kingdom and destroy everything for my purposes. And so Adam deserves the death that he brings upon himself. And so how can Christ in death be crowned with glory and honor? 
because he is the Savior who does not deserve sin himself. He is the righteous Son of God, the one who has glory and honor, and yet because of his death receives the glory and honor of Psalm 8, the glory and honor you and I were supposed to have, the glory and honor of being the one, the righteous Son of Man, the righteous one who reigns in God's place. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man, the one crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And so in Jesus, we become who we were meant to be. We were meant to reign with God's wisdom and love and purpose. That's what Jesus does. And when we put our trust in him, then we are united to him in his purpose. One commentator says, only in union with the Son can man become man as God meant man to be. Do you see saying, you and I were meant as humanity, male and female, in the perfect, perfect perfection of creation to be the image of God, reigning over God's perfect kingdom, and yet we failed. And so it's only in union with Christ that we can become who we were meant to be. It's only in the death of Christ that all of creation finds its freedom and forgiveness. It's only in the resurrection of Jesus that we have the promise that this world is coming, this new world is coming. The passage ends here with a reminder of grace. That Jesus died is now crowned with glory and honor because of the death he suffered, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you put your trust in Jesus, then you receive this free gift. That's what grace is. It's God's undeserved blessing and favor given to us, not because of anything good in us, but because of the goodness of Christ. Jesus earns this glory and honor by humbling himself. Jesus promises that his kingdom is coming again. There is the promise. We saw it in previous weeks that, that Psalm 110 reminds us that, that Jesus will one day put every enemy under his feet as his footstool. Even death itself will be conquered through the death of Jesus. Because this king is not dead. His kingdom is secure. We might not see it now. But Jesus reigns over everything. And when his kingdom comes, we will see who we are meant to be by putting our trust in him. Right now, we don't see everything subject to Christ. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word gives us an explanation of, of where we are in history. That you explain to us the brokenness of this world, that you, you help us to understand our sin. And yet, Lord, you haven't left us here. The story is still being written. The kingdom comes. And so, Lord, help us to, to reign and to rule in Jesus' name as those who, 
who humbly proclaim the gospel, that we receive this gift not because of anything good in us. We receive it by faith alone, because of the goodness of Jesus, because of your grace displayed to us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would turn us from despair, from frustration and disappointment. You would turn us in hope toward the work of your kingdom. Lord, we pray for the spread of your kingdom today. We echo the prayers from earlier in the service that your kingdom would be expanded in the midst of the Ukrainian people, that the church would be bold in its witness, encouraged in the gospel, longing for the coming kingdom of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, do that work in us as we make the gospel known to family members and classmates, as we invite others to put their trust in you. Father, help us to to live lives that bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen us for the work, your work, in your kingdom, that we might be who you made us to be, that you would crown us with glory and honor because of Jesus the Savior, that we would be united to him by faith. We come praying in Jesus' name, amen.